You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, Episode 78. As a pelvic floor PT, I was like, I'm going to want to be doing squats and walking around and getting in the bathtub and hands and knees. And I was so tired by this point because I had slept for maybe three hours interrupted by contractions after my marathon of walking just a few hours before. I was so tired. Every time she changed positions, I was like, no, leave me alone. I'm just laying here. (laughs) That's it. And welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Are you following us on Instagram yet? We have lots of educational content there, so connect with us over at Birth Matters NYC. If you live in New York City or Western Long Island and are considering hiring a doula, I'm happy to offer you a couple of excellent options to find a great birth or postpartum doula. If you want to make highly efficient use of your time, we invite you to attend our collective's next free Meet the Doulas event. It's an interactive, speed-dating-style event that will allow you to meet several doulas all in one efficient sitting to see who you might connect with, and then you narrow it down and meet with one or more later for an extended complimentary interview after the event. We usually hold them monthly, so just visit eastriverdoulas.nyc, and on the homepage, there's a link to RSVP. At the time this episode airs, our next Meet the Doulas is coming up Saturday, April 23rd at 5 p.m. on Zoom. Or if you prefer, you can visit eastriverdoulas.nyc anytime and fill out our quick inquiry form for one-on-one help with this. Now a little bit about today's episode. As a pelvic PT, Helene started off pregnancy with unique and applicable skills that informed her decision to pursue an unmedicated birth in a hospital. She shares about the various things that helped her have mostly the kind of labor and birth she had hoped for, including support from her husband and doula, breath work, a peanut ball, hydrotherapy, and more. When it comes time for pushing, both the position and the technique she ends up using are not ones she ever would have guessed she'd do, nor would she recommend to clients, but that felt necessary due to both exhaustion and a medical concern for the baby. Helene also shares about her early breastfeeding and healing challenges and how going through this process personally inspired her to start a fully virtual pelvic PT and other perinatal care support service offering. Just a heads up that before Helene shares her son's birth story, she describes a previous early pregnancy loss. Also, since this is a shorter story, I'll do a bit of extended teaching commentary at the end. Now let's jump in. So glad to have you today. Would you please just start us out by introducing yourself a little bit, Helene, and share maybe how long ago you gave birth and uh, what you do for a living, since it's especially relevant to the listeners. (laughs) Anything else, maybe where you live, if you want, whatever you'd like to share. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Helene Darmanin. I am a pelvic health and orthopedic physical therapist, and I specialize in treating pregnant and postpartum folks. I was fortunate enough to have my son 18 months ago, which sometimes feels like forever. And it sometimes feels like yesterday. We just relocated from New York City to Paramus, New Jersey. We are now the butt of our own jokes being New York natives. <laughs> New York natives who live in New Jersey, but we're loving the loving the space and especially the yard. I just planted some vegetables this morning, which is so oh, treat. I love excited. gardening. Fun. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Especially when you have a little one, as your little one grows, for them to see where their food comes from is so great and so important, I think. Yeah, we have gone to our CSA farm in past years when our kids were littler and got to walk out in the fields and show them like, yeah, here's how the carrots grow. And it was just such a great educational thing. And so to have that in yeah. your backyard, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And I think also just caring for things. Like he comes out with me every morning and we water the plants. We water the flowers. The, the vegetables, not as much yet. Because this morning he was trying to throw the dirt around that had tiny seeds in it. It's like, oh, no. not, not now. <laughs> not now. <laughs> Usually I'm all about throwing dirt, but not this dirt. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Precious dirt with seeds to grow things. <laughs> nice. All right. So let's start off by, can you talk a little bit about your pregnancy? How did your pregnancy go? What were the different ways that you prepared for the transition into parenthood? Yeah. So I actually, my first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage about seven weeks pregnant. I actually went into my first prenatal visit with my OB and she said, oh, you're here for your first prenatal visit. And I was like, actually, I think I'm having a miscarriage right now because mm. I had started bleeding and a lot of the discomfort that I was having was actually starting to disappear. So my breasts had been tender and then they stopped being tender and I started to have some abdominal cramping. So I was pretty sure and sure enough, she confirmed. And then it was a bizarre time because then they, they couldn't quite confirm it was blood work yet. And then it turned out I needed an emergency DNC because I had a blood clot blocking the shedding of my uterine lining. So it was sort of interesting to have that intense medical experience around and, and it didn't leave as much room for the emotional experience right off the bat. So that took a back seat for a little while. It took a little while to then process after that couple of weeks of is everything okay? My OB was having my husband watch to see if I needed to go to the hospital because of blood loss. She reached a point where she was concerned. So and how many weeks were you when you when about you seven weeks seven. yeah I mean I, I hear a lot of different things people saying oh it's just an early loss oh it's just a chemical pregnancy and then I hear the pushback of but it was a loss that's and, what I was going to ask is did you find that people minimized it because it was earlier on some people did I mean I think I did and my husband certainly did he often forgets that I was pregnant a, another time so I, I don't feel like everyone needs to look at the silver lining when you've had a miscarriage it's sad and it's hard. Mm -hmm. I felt very fortunate that things turned out okay. And we were able to get pregnant again really quickly after that, which for me, that helped my healing process because I kind of thought the first pregnancy almost laid the groundwork mm -hmm. for the successful second pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But it also made me a little bit desperate at the beginning of my second pregnancy to really make sure it took. Mm -hmm. So my OB had had two miscarriages herself. So she was really amazing about it. I loved her approach, oh, which was very much like, look, they tell us to tell you that it's a chromosomal abnormality at this point in time. That didn't help me at all when I was having a miscarriage. It's terrible. And mm -hmm. I just appreciated her frankness mm -hmm. so much. And then during my second pregnancy, 
she prescribed some progesterone suppositories vaginally. Mm -hmm. She was like, listen, the evidence is 50-50. It might help. It might not help, but you'll appreciate doing something. And I was like- Yeah, it gives you a sense of agency. Hit the nail right on the head. That was Mm -hmm. exactly what I needed at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the second pregnancy to feel like I was doing something Mm -hmm. to try to- hold on to it. And putting a little progesterone popsicle in my vagina every night was uh, (laughs) certainly felt like I was doing something because it was pretty uncomfortable. But yeah, so that was the beginning of my second pregnancy. I was really lucky to be able, like I said, to get pregnant again the first month we tried after I got my period back. And I did some wonderful acupuncture with my friend Sarah at Avalon Acupuncture, which helped to regulate my hormones again so that I did get my period back rather quickly after that DNC because it can take two months and I got mine back in five weeks and then was able to get pregnant again right away. So that was very fortunate. And then I feel like my pregnancy experience was pretty average. I didn't have morning sickness, which was very lucky. I'd have a little bit of nausea. And for some reason, a croissant was the one thing that would always calm my nausea. (laughs) So the coffee cart guy (laughs) got to know me very well. (laughs) That time of day again, I need a cinnamon coffee and a croissant. Oh, Um, sounds good. (laughs) It was delicious. And first trimester, the most significant thing for me was exhaustion. And I was a personal trainer for 10 years before I became a physical therapist. So I I loved exercise. I exercised so much. And that first trimester, it was all I could do to get on a stationary bike and put on an episode of Outlander and just keep my legs moving. I was like, if my legs are moving, this counts as exercise because I wanted to make sure that I was exercising for myself and for my kiddo. So that was the first trimester, just those tiny bits of exhaustion and lots or tiny bits of nausea and, and lots and lots and lots of exhaustion, some breast tenderness, but nothing really remarkable. Second trimester was the sweet spot. That's where it was at. My energy levels were back up. I started to have the little baby bump, which was exciting. Everyone could tell I was pregnant and I was really excited to have made it to the second trimester and not have experienced the loss this time. And it was right over the summer. It was my birthday. It was a beautiful time. And then (laughs) third trimester was when similar to everyone I know and everyone I work with, I started to feel like a whale (laughs) and and that led to some back pain. Also, I had the ton of swelling in my hands and feet, which may have had a little bit to do with the fact that I kept craving Chinese food. <laughs> so that's that sodium content. all that sodium. <laughs> my hands and feet were like sausages. And that gave me some carpal tunnel syndrome, which was a bummer. And I did see someone for physical therapy during that third trimester, which mm-hmm. helped me help me because I worked in person as a PT until 38 and a half weeks pregnant. So mm-hmm. I was on my feet, I was commuting, I needed some support. And mm-hmm. I did use also a, a belly band and lots of compression socks. But I was grateful. I was grateful to be able to be working and I was still working out all the way up until 38 and a half weeks. And then I, I took a week and a half before my due date off, which was such a good idea. I just watched movies and baked cookies and Yay. like had time for myself. I got a pedicure, which was one of the best things I could have done because I couldn't reach my toes. Right. And I didn't think about my toes for months after that. So that felt lovely. So I Everybody listen recommend. to Helene. Like if you're able to stop work yeah. and do a lot of self-care, even if you can't stop work, just self-care, self-care, yep. self-care in, that, in yep. those last couple of weeks or a few weeks, even if you can. Yeah. A great tip. I'm glad you were able to do that. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, 
suggest it to all my clients and all my friends. It, it, there's nothing like it. And then interestingly, the last few days when I was really eager and anxious to go into labor, doing puzzles was the thing for me. I don't like puzzles normally, but I needed something to keep me busy and keep my mind occupied so that I wasn't just come, come out of me <laughs> all day long. So that was really fun. My husband and my sister and I worked on some really difficult puzzles, which was great. The harder, the better to keep my brain <laughs> <laughs> occupied. And then and you I were had- ahead of the curve. So many people, including our family, have gotten really big into puzzles in the pandemic, but you gave birth shortly <laughs> just before the pandemic. Just before, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the October before. So mm-hmm. almost five months before it. Yeah, it's true. I had one day of false labor about a week before. It was the Saturday before. And then that Friday, I started to feel contractions. And I was like, this will not be false labor. And I started walking around the block furiously. And I lived in Ridgewood, Queens. So the blocks there are like those long residential blocks. And I think I lapped that block like 10 times that day. My doulas were texting me. They were like, no rest. And I was like, no, I'm going into labor now. (laughs) And I really wish I would have listened to them because I was so tired. (laughs) (laughs) waddling around a block 10 times. is It's a lot when you're that big. And in the work you do, you probably just already knew about doulas. Did you hire them early on? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I have always planned on having doulas. I found New York Birth Village and they do pairs of doulas, which I had never heard of before. And I think it is just brilliant. I love them. Yes, they're wonderful. Narchi and Carla are awesome, but I worked with mm-hmm. Erica Schultz and Sam Hom, who's no longer in doula work, but she's in reproductive. I didn't reproduct- realize that. Yeah, she's doing yeah. some work in reproductive justice. So oh. she's awesome. They were both awesome. And I loved having them. I hired them as early as I could. I think I was 12 weeks so that I could have their support during the pregnancy as well as during delivery and postpartum. Yeah, they were invaluable when I had anything going on. Should I call the doctor? Should I? Which, of course, you should not rely on your doulas for medical support. You should talk to your doctor. But it's still helpful to know, Just like, sort of is another this something voice. normal? Yeah. Because even though I've worked with pregnant folks, it's nothing like experiencing it yourself. There's right? nothing like it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And important to get out of your clinical head as much as you can, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. That's so true. That is so true. So you're talking about this early labor, pre-labor, and how many weeks were you at this point? I was just a couple days shy of my due date. Okay. That's what I I thought, but I just wanted to be sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was three days shy of my due date. So yeah, that Friday. So then the contractions were increasing, which was, I was like, yes, yes, it's happening this time. It's happening. And then finally at nine something, we were like, let's go to bed and get what rest we can. I had started trying to use the contraction timer app, but was kind of in and out of it. And then I woke up at 1230 and I was like, nope, this is it. Um, like I can't stay quiet during the contractions anymore. I just like, I can't sleep in between them anymore. I know this is time. And I remember my husband calling the hospital and being like, okay, we have to come in. And of course my OB was on call Thursday and Friday until midnight and then off Saturday and back on Sunday and Monday. And I went into, I needed to go to the hospital just after midnight on Friday night into Saturday morning. And so he talked to the doctor who was on call and she was like, oh, how's your wife doing? And, and then she heard me in the background and she was like, yeah, it's time. You, you better bring her in. And I will never forget. He was like, okay, I'm going to take a shower now. And I was like, you're going to do what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, we'll probably be at the hospital all weekend and I'm not going to shower there. So I'm going to take a shower. You just chill on the couch. Okay. And I was like, I'm going to kill you. That sounds more like a doula trick than a partner trick. (laughs) I was like, are you, are you crazy? So he took his shower while I like, I was on the floor, leaned over the couch, (laughs) moaning. (laughs) 
because <laughs> like, Sam was going to meet us at the hospital. And then we drove about a half hour. Oh, and it was bumpy, those New York potholes. Because we, <laughs> we went yes. We were at Mount Sinai West. And so we drove from Queens over the 59th Street Bridge. That was my first labor commute as well. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a bad one, but those midtown potholes were not. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yes. I always say like, maybe it's helping progress because it's (laughs) ramming the baby down on the cervix (laughs) and the pelvic floor, but it's not pleasant. (laughs) It is not pleasant. It is not pleasant. (laughs) And my husband still says, oh, you were shouting at me every time I hit a pothole. I like, I tried my best. <laughs> so I was just sitting in the back like, what are you doing? <laughs> so we got to the hospital, maybe 2 a.m. And I was in active labor, which they had a, a intern do my initial cervical exam, which was not pleasant, but necessary. So I was about six centimeters and pretty effaced. So they admitted me, went to labor and delivery. My sister and my mother came, my in-laws came, everyone popped in to say hi. And Sam was there with me. She attended my birth or was my support at my birth, which was amazing. Of course, as a pelvic floor PT, I was like, I'm going to want to be doing squats and walking around and getting in the bathtub and hands and knees. And I was so tired by this point because I had slept for maybe three hours interrupted by contractions after my marathon of walking the day before or like just a few hours before. I was so tired. Every time she was changed positions, I was like, no, leave me alone. I'm just laying here. (laughs) That's it. That's one of those tricky things in labor is finding that balance between rest and activity because you don't know how long you're going to have to do this. So it's really hard to know how much to pace yourself. Yeah. Totally agree. And can you just clarify how many hours was this by the time you got to your birthplace from whenever you would call it the start of labor? I think I started having contractions at 10 or 11 a.m. on Friday, but really mild, really spaced out contractions every 15 minutes. And I could, I'd have them while I was walking and I'd be just fine. And then about 9 p.m. when we went to bed, they had started getting a little bit closer together, a little bit more intense. And then when I woke up at 12 a.m. or 12.30 a.m., they were just a couple minutes apart and very intense. So By the time you're in the hospital, 2 or 3 a.m., it had been since 11 a.m. the day before. Math is 12, 13. It's okay. The times are fine. That's the hours. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was for the most, the majority of that time, it was like, oh, a little little cramping action. Like, oh, it was a little, that kind of like wave-like cramping. Not, I was able to still, I think I baked more cookies too and watched movies and did puzzles. So nice. All those early labor activities. Yeah. yeah. So it was still totally fine. I I don't know what. When people talk about how long they're in labor, I'm never quite sure if they're referring to since the very first time they felt a contraction or. Yep. And that's what I always point out in class is a difference between someone saying they had a six hour labor versus a 24 hour labor might be that six hour person slept through early labor or just didn't count it because it wasn't intense and started counting it when it got really intense versus some of us want all the credit for all those hours of work that our bodies have done. And I say, you deserve the credit. So you get to count as much as you want. Yes. Yeah. So there we are in the hospital. I don't want to change positions. I just wanted to lay on my side. And Sam was awesome. She was putting the peanut ball between my legs and helping me have my hips in internal rotation, external rotation, help the baby progress through the pelvis as, as I just kind of was like, <laughs> put a fan on me. My water actually did not break. Unlike all the television shows, there was no dramatic moment of <laughs> flooding 
fluids. So Sam was encouraging me to try to change positions. And I did at one point get into the shower. I tried hands and knees, both in the shower and on the bed, and it still wouldn't break. And I was like, I am just too tired. I cannot keep changing positions. So I let them break my water manually, which did help progress labor. Not that it was ever stalled. It was progressing pretty steadily. And then came the big excitement, which was that as we were getting very close, they discovered that every time I pushed, his heart rate was dropping and he was desatting. So his oxygen levels were also dropping, which is very normal for pushing, but it didn't feel normal at the time because when you're in that hospital setting, you hear the beeps slow down, you see Mm -hmm. them, you see the doctor and the nurses start Mm -hmm. to be concerned. So he was initially, he was stuck on my pubic bone. And then once they were able to get him past there, that was still happening. It turned out he had a cord wrap around his shoulder. So every time I would push, the cord would get pulled taut his heart rate would drop and he his saturation would drop. So I ended up doing exactly what I had hoped not to do, which was in a lithotomy position on my back, knees bent, held back, not even a pillow under me, which I, if I had been in my like PT mindset, I would have put a pillow under my sacrum to allow it to have a little more room to move and doing directed pushing. So that inhale and then hold your breath and push for 10 seconds, which the combination of that position and the directed pushing is a recipe for perineal tearing, which is exactly what happened. But at the time, it seemed like an emergency. In retrospect, I'm not 100% sure it was, but it happened. So we didn't get to do what we had hoped to do, which was delayed cord clamping and immediate skin to skin contact, because by the time they cut the cord while he was when he was not fully out yet, because they needed that to, for him to be able to come out so that it wasn't continuing to pull him back in by his shoulder. And then they had to take him to make sure that he didn't need suctioning because there had been meconium present in the fluid. So that was not quite what we expected, but what birth ever really is. True. And but like all the medical panic was really in retrospect, I wish that that had not been the case. I, th- I think they did a good job of not ever saying like, this is not possible any longer to have an unmedicated vaginal delivery because they knew that that was really, really important to me. So they never pushed any other alternatives. And they did ask like even before breaking my water, they talked to me about it. I'm not sure that I answered uh, in any way coherently, but I said yes. But so I feel like they respected my autonomy, but there was a little bit more of that medical everything's a fire kind of feel to it than I would have liked. But he was fine. He did not need to be suctioned, which I was very grateful for. And then we got to hold him immediately after, which was great. Nice. So you're saying they took him over to the bassinet briefly to just Mm -hmm. check and be sure the meconium hadn't caused any need for suctioning. And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he had a great APGAR score. So we were very relieved at that point. Mm -hmm. Nice. In any reflections just emotionally on those moments of meeting your child, your baby? <laughs> I was so tired. <laughs> I mm-hmm. was, it was so hard to be fully present and aware. And part of me later felt a little bit guilty about that. But like, mm. I'd like to share that in case anyone else has a similar experience. Because yeah. it took me no a guilt. little while to be like, oh, he's like mine. He's my kid. Obviously, as I was holding him, I had that love and the, the joy of seeing his little face. But it took a day or two for it to really fully sink in of me just he roomed in with us then in the recovery. And I was just staring at him for a while. Oh, <laughs> like, so it, <laughs> yeah. 
It wasn't an immediate, it wasn't exactly what I expected because I expected that immediate, oh my God, it's my kid. Mm. Overwhelming, which is not to say that I didn't love him right away, but you know, it just, it was more of a process than I expected. It feels for many, the more birth stories I hear, I feel like more often than not, there is that simultaneous exhilaration, but also really exhaustion and kind of a, almost a feeling of shock of this labor often has taken many hours when it's the first time in particular. But that moment of the very end often feels very sudden and this baby's thrust on you and you're like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. So more often than not, this is what I hear is that people aren't immediately in love and just like, oh, love fest kind of thing. Sometimes that's the case, but I feel like more often than not, it's just complicated. I love that you're pointing this out because too many people feel guilty about if they don't instantly feel connected or bonded to this baby in a deep way. And that is normal. That can totally take days or weeks or months to yeah. grow into that. Yeah. yeah well, there's just so that. many different terrifying experiences happening at the same time because there's birth, which is like your body having this massive, massive effort and sometimes trauma. Mm -hmm. And then there's now all of a sudden a newborn who you have to take care of. And that's just all of a sudden, every minute of the day, there's this kid to take care of. And like, Intense. you knew it, you knew that that would happen. But again, it's just so there's no way for us it. to understand experientially what that will feel like, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember too, I think I needed to intellectualize it for a minute just to kind of process what was happening. And I remember talking to this poor labor and delivery nurse who was so lovely and so kind. And I think I gave her a whole monologue about this is why abortion should be legal because no one should be forced to go through that who didn't really, really, really want it. Because <laughs> I was just like, holy crap, you can't force people to do this. You need to be committed to do this. She was very, she really humored me. She was very kind. <laughs> <laughs> it was like loopy, completely sleep deprived post-birth. <laughs> like so relieved that everything had turned out okay. Oh, it's great. All right. So then what? So you were saying that the pushing stage was not what you envisioned and that as a pelvic PT, you never recommend pushing on your back in the lithotomy <laughs> position yeah. or directed pushing. So can you yeah. talk about then what happened and how did you get into this specialty and yeah, absolutely. more passionate um, about it? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a grade two perineal tear and stitching. It felt like it took forever and ever because a lot of the tearing was actually internal. So it was a lot of the pelvic floor muscles themselves rather than just skin. And so I was in pain sitting down for a week, a week and a half, really couldn't, was sitting off on one butt cheek in the car, trying not to put pressure on that area. And I also had some difficulty with breastfeeding. So that was kind of happening at the same time. So that took priority over myself because we needed to make sure he got to a point where he was dehydrated and a little lethargic. And then he was having mm. even more difficulty latching because he was dehydrated. So mm. I got some amazing support actually via telephone from Disa, who now is the lactation practitioner at Mama Bear PT, which is my virtual pregnancy and postpartum support practice. And in addition to that, then I had this really a lot of discomfort in my perineum. So after about a week and a half, I was able to sit, but not particularly comfortably. And I went to my six week checkup where my OB, I love her, but she did a typical OB thing where she was like, your stitches have healed. They're not actively bleeding or open anymore. You're good to go. You can have sex. You can be active. Yeah. And I was like, are you crazy? I'm going to have sex right now. 
that sounds horrible. Right. That sounds oh yeah. Terrifying. Like, and that's how a lot of us feel at your six week visit. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I know I need some pelvic floor PT. And I asked her, I was like, please give me a prescription for PT, which you don't always need a prescription for PT. But I knew that my insurance was more likely to cover it if I had a prescription. And then I was like, how do I get to PT? I have a newborn. Do I take him with me? Do I leave him home? Do I bring him somewhere to have someone babysit him? Do I want to bring him on the subway to go somewhere? And I didn't know how to get to PT, even though I knew I needed it. I wanted some help. I didn't want sex to be terrifying because I would like to have sex and I would like to eventually have a second kid. And so eventually I figured it out and I did three sessions with a good friend of mine who's absolutely delightful, Liz at Thrive Physical Therapy. She's basically at the Broadway Lafayette station. She's phenomenal. And I figured out doing three sessions with her where I took my little guy in a carrier on the subway from Queens to the Upper East Side, dropped him off with my in-laws and got back on the subway, went down to Broadway Lafayette, went to PT, which was I felt like I was playing hooky because then I like got lunch afterwards. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to eat lunch by myself. That's um, like self-care for moms. <laughs> there was like that little guilty voice in the back that was like, you've been away from him for two hours. You better get back. You better get back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I'm going to eat a burrito and then I'm going to go back. <laughs> that even shouldn't even be called self-care, right? Because know, you need to eat. <laughs> like, yeah. And yet it yeah, feel, you that. feel guilty about it. it it's, uh I say that all the time. I have moms tell me, oh, what self-care did you do? I took a shower. And I'm like, that's just basic, basic yeah, hygiene. And yeah. not to say you should, you should take a shower. But then in addition to that, you should try to do something else for yourself. It feels like oh. literally pampering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe if you said I took an hour long bubble bath with a glass of wine and a good book, <laughs> then I would be like, yes, that counts. Yes. <laughs> but the 10 minute mom shower, where <laughs> no, that doesn't count. So yeah, then I kind of got to thinking like, how can women get PT or birthing folks? How can they get PT after when they have this newborn? But I knew like, I knew what time my son would nap every day. I was really lucky early on 9am, 1pm, that kid went down. No variation at all. I thought, God, if I could just do something while I was at home and then COVID hit and I started treating folks virtually out of necessity via video chat. And I started treating pregnant and postpartum folks virtually. And I realized I could have my son taking a nap in the other room. They could have their kid taking a nap in the other room and we could still give them tools to help them heal their pregnancy aches and pains, prepare for birth, and then return to whatever new normal they wanted to find postpartum. And and that's different for everyone. Some people are like, hey, I want to go back to doing the crazy boxing, weightlifting, hit stuff I was doing before pregnancy. And some people are like, I just need my back to not hurt anymore as I pick my kid up and down or wash the dishes. And whatever it is, that's what you deserve. So, and I, one of the things I love about virtual care is that I give people tools and then they take them and run with them. And I'm here to support and facilitate as opposed to sometimes when you go to in-person care, then you feel like you're reliant on mm-hmm. this machine, this person, this. And I never want that to be the case. I want my folks to do a few weeks of PT with me. And then I only want to hear from them with baby pictures and funny stories after that. Just email me every couple months. I want to see baby pictures, but I want you to graduate. I want you to have the tools that you need to move forward on your own. So that's my big priority. And then I also, since I had such an incredible experience with Erica as my doula, I was telling her about my idea and she loved it. So she is now the pregnancy and postpartum coach 
for mama bear. So she helps folks figure out pregnancy, the emotional stuff, the practicalities and how to prepare for that postpartum period and then helps folks throughout the postpartum period, which could be as simple as reviewing how to change a diaper. It could be as much as helping figure out family dynamics and also how to eat and how to get the laundry done. Um, Because she's a nutritionist, right? Yeah. So she's Mm -hmm. also a nutritionist and she offers nutrition services as well. Mm -hmm. And she's a certified childbirth educator. So she does that as well for Mama Bear, all virtually. And then Disa, who is my lactation practitioner, also offers virtual support via Mama Bear. In addition to the physical therapy that I offer, I also do birth preparation sessions more for the physical preparation for birth. So all that is virtual so that folks can, when you're pregnant and exhausted and you don't want to get on a train or get in the car, it can be accessed virtually. Mm, That's so fantastic. I love that. Yeah. And in terms of lactation support, one thing I've heard is similar to what you were saying in, in terms of the virtual support, the benefits of that, of just hearing a number of my lactation consultant friends saying, yeah, it's like getting them to be autonomous from the get-go. They're Mm -hmm. doing it, which is what we, that's the goal, (laughs) exactly like you were saying. So it has been surprising and encouraging to see some of the benefits of virtual support and the convenience of it, especially for new parents who Mm -hmm. are overwhelmed and it feels hard to get out of the house to go anywhere. Without COVID, you're supposed to be a little bit careful about like what germs you're exposing your Mm -hmm. little one to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really excited. And that does count as self-care. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) At least the PT part, maybe not the lactation part. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so in the last few minutes that we have together, I'm just wondering if you have any basic tips for someone expecting a baby in how they can best prepare to protect their pelvic floor health and their physical health going through this journey of giving birth and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there are many, 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 but (laughs) your best ones, just your highlights, little teaser. (laughs) (laughs) My number one, and this is for pregnancy and postpartum, and it sounds so overly simple, but is literally start a breathing practice. We know that it has tremendous benefits mentally and emotionally, but also your pelvic floor and your diaphragm work together. They mirror each other. So as your diaphragm descends, as you take an inhale, your pelvic floor also descends. And then as you exhale, your diaphragm can comes back into that dome shape and your pelvic floor also ascends back into the body. So if you take a real full deep breath, which will look like your whole rib cage expanding circumferentially. So not just front to back, but also side to side. And the back piece is often the hardest. So getting that the, the back to also expand as you take that full deep breath. If you take a full deep breath like that, where you're expanding your whole rib cage and filling your whole belly and lower back with air, then you're really moving that pelvic floor through a full range of motion. And that is so beneficial for keeping it supple and flexible enough that helps prepare for birth. And then also in the postpartum period, when it's undergone this huge, huge thing, it had to hold the weight of the fetus up for 40 weeks and all the placenta, the increased abdominal fat, all that. And then it had if you have a vaginal birth, this massive stretch in order to sit a child through there or a cesarean birth where you had some trauma to the tissues around it, whatever the case may be, it means the first thing you need is to be able to move it fully again. So taking those deep breaths 
actually engages the abdominal muscles too and the pelvic floor to help them work together and be able to move fully, which is the most important piece. I know a lot of folks want to start out doing Kegels, but if you start doing Kegels while your pelvic floor is still tight Mm -hmm. and not able to move through a full range of motion, it's like doing a bicep curl with your hand already at your shoulder. You're just going to vibrate your arm back and forth a little bit, and that's not particularly effective. And the same thing is true with your pelvic floor. We need that full range of motion before we add any strength component. And a lot of times engaging the pelvic floor like that through a full range of motion, I find folks don't end up even needing Kegels. Sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. It's like blasphemy for a pelvic floor PT to say no one needs Kegels, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but there's an overemphasis on that for pregnant people, right? So many OBs are like, do your Kegels, do your Kegels. And that actually can backfire and and make it harder. Like you're saying to have that full range of the ability to lengthen and bulge Mm -hmm. and relax to let the baby come through. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Kegels are not terrible during pregnancy and any strong, supple muscle, if you can move through a full range of motion, it's not a bad idea to add some Kegels in there, but it's not my go-to. My go-to is that deep breathing. Mm, love that. Yeah. yeah. That breath work is so great for everything. this purpose, for everything. Yeah. That's what <laughs> yeah. I was about to say. <laughs> for so many things. <laughs> yeah. Just taught birth class last night and we were going into different breathing strategies for labor oh, specifically. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, is there anything that you haven't gotten to share that you wanted to share before we wrap things up? No, I don't think so. I'll just share that you can find Mama yes, Bear at mamabearpt.com or on Instagram at mamabear underscore PT or on Facebook. We're all over the place. If you find our website, you'll find us. Great. Mamabearpt.com. I will include that in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aline. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thanks for sharing all these details and thanks for the work that you're doing. I hope that people can reach out for support if they feel like they could benefit. It's a really wonderful, well-rounded offering that your practice has started doing. So best of luck with that. And I hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Lisa. Helene was very efficient in sharing her story, wasn't she? Today, I'm going to talk about strategies for pushing and protecting the pelvic floor, strategies for balancing rest with activity and labor, the range of normal for timing of bonding, postpartum sex, and breath work. You heard Helene mention how, in the pushing stage, she ended up doing a couple of things she never thought she would as a pelvic PT because she was under the impression it was urgent to give birth due to baby's distress on the heart monitor. In episode 56 with fertility doula Allison Ware, I talk more about directed pushing and strategies to reduce or prevent tearing. I explained why directed pushing is hardly ever very instinctive and ways in which it's unhelpful, how it's usually the standard go-to among hospital staff, and how you can opt out of directed pushing. I spoke about how ideal and protective the uncontrollable or physiological urge to push is, we also call that the expulsion reflex, and about ACOG's adjusted recommendation in the past few years saying there's no one right way to push. Today, I'd like to build upon those strategies to protect the pelvic floor from episode 56 and add some more tips. Evidence-Based Birth has recently been doing a series on their podcast on the evidence on protecting the perineum. For anyone not familiar with the term perineum, it's the tissue in between the anus and the vagina. A couple of things research seems to support are slowing down the birth of the baby's head and using warm, wet compresses when baby is crowning. 
Here in New York City hospitals, the slowing down is standard, but the compresses are not. It's something you need to usually specifically request. The way your care provider would have you slow things down when the baby's head is crowning is to ask you to resist the urge to bear down in those last moments and instead to do some kind of exhaling motion such as or shh or The goal is to let the uterus very slowly stretch the tissue open in a way that is less likely to cause as much tearing as compared to if we were to actively bear down and add force to the pushing. Another important tip is to avoid pushing on your back, as you heard Helene mention she would normally recommend. There are a few reasons why, if left to our own instincts, most people would never willingly lie down on our back to give birth. First, it doesn't feel good to have all that extra weight of the baby, placenta, amniotic fluid pushing down on your backbone, sacrum, and tailbone. Lying on the back tends to close the pelvis, largely because it renders the sacrum and tailbone immobile. In other positions, the sacrum and tailbone would have the ability to move out of the way of the baby and open the pelvic outlet or the bottom of the pelvis. The sacrum and tailbone are also curved inward toward the pelvic outlet a bit so that if a birthing person is lying on the back, they're having to work harder to push the baby up and over a hill. And yet, in medical schools here in the U.S., OBs are trained to catch babies with the birthing person lying in a semi-reclined position on their back with legs wide, either held with arms or with feet in stirrups. This position is also known as lithotomy, as you heard Helene mention today. Interestingly, that wide leg position also closes the pelvic outlet. Anyway, it makes sense if that's the way OBs are trained that this is what they're most comfortable with and feel is safest. But in my opinion, that is short-sighted. This is why it's important to have conversations at your prenatal visits to get a sense of how flexible your care provider is and to express your preferences. They can't know what you prefer unless you let them know. This is one of many things that will help you assess if you've hired the right care provider for you. But say that you're otherwise very happy with your care provider, but they are less flexible on how they're catching the baby, and if it's something that doesn't matter a ton to you personally, you could always do what Helene mentioned she wished she had done, which is to wedge a soft pillow under the sacrum to give it a bit more ability to open for the baby. Another tip that could possibly help to protect the pelvic floor, though there's really not enough solid research on it, is to do perineal massage prenatally, which I talk about more in episode 19 with model Lauren Deckert, and we'll link to in the show notes. Then on the topic of balancing rest with activity, this is such a tricky topic. You heard how Helene was so intent on staying active that by the end she was pretty exhausted. Many times this is inevitable, but strategically speaking, I recommend a guiding principle of 30 minutes of activity balanced with 30 minutes of rest. You do need to conserve energy and labor since you don't know how long you'll be in labor, but you also want to promote progress of the baby moving down through your body with gentle activity. This strategy is valuable even if you're planning on getting the epidural because the birthing process is very unknowable and unpredictable and you may or may not end up getting it to be able to sleep during the intensity of labor. 
Three episodes ago in episode 75, I talked at the end about the range of normal timing in which you start to feel bonded and connected with your baby. In that story, the couple felt almost immediately as if their baby had been with them forever, contrasted to Helene's feelings expressed today. Helene's experience is a prime example of what I emphasized in episode 75 about how common and normal it can be for a parent to not instantaneously feel that deep connectedness, that feeling of, this is my baby. So again, please hear me when I say you should not feel guilty if you don't feel it instantly when you meet them. Just like with most other relationships, it can take some time to grow into that feeling of connectedness. (laughs) Unlike the hit reality show Love is Blind, which our doula collective is all abuzz about. Helene brought up how her OB gave her the physical sign-off to resume having vaginal intercourse at her six-week visit. People often get fixated on that six-week sign-off, but in birth class, I encourage folks to adjust their expectation along these lines and not expect to immediately be back into the saddle of whatever your previous love life has looked like. Expect it to be more of a gradual finding your new normal. Having a baby is all kinds of exhausting, and that sleep deprivation will hit your libido like just about nothing else will. Another factor is whoever is giving and receiving most of the touch and caring for the baby throughout the day often feels so touched out that there's no desire or need to touch anyone else or anything else today. Thank you very much. In this episode's show notes, I'll link to episode 48 from the Longest Shortest Time podcast called The Parent's Guide to Doing It that takes a deeper dive into this topic to help you process your love life in the first year of having a baby. In the last things that Helene said regarding the importance of breath in this journey through pregnancy and into postpartum, I wanted to mention that I will link to a few supportive resources on breathwork and the connection to the pelvic floor in the show notes for this episode, episode 78, over at birthmattersshow.com. One of them is a wonderful online postpartum breathwork course that a local friend of mine, Amy Baumgarten, created called Returning to Center. We chatted a few months back over on Instagram about some basic principles for pregnancy and postpartum. Along similar lines, I'll also link to my website resources where I keep a current list of my top recommendations for both breathwork and perinatal fitness programs, most of which have a strong focus on pelvic floor health. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. There were a couple of things that really had helped from your class. And the one that I had mentally absorbed was the difference between pain and intensity and the framing it as intensity. And that definitely helped me to think about this as the waves coming on, but not in terms of pain. Because I stood up, I was on my feet pretty much the whole time. I think. Yeah, up until I doing, up until the very end, you you, you stood up as, as much as you could. And I was doing a lot of moving around. I was doing a lot of stretching and like weird. Like, Dancing. I, like Martha Graham. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was very instinctive. Like I was not really thinking about how to move. I was just moving. Helene's Mama Bear PT's company motto is move strong, love strong. What might it look like today for you to move strong and love strong? Thank you so much for listening today to the Birth Matters podcast. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time.